0: This is Urban Tiger Radio, a project supported by CybermouseMultimedia.com, sponsors of our free weekly podcasts. Search for Urban Tiger Radio in the iTunes store or on Stitcher.com and hit the subscribe button to receive free automatic downloads. Please remember to share and rate our show before you leave. Well, this is Bill Allerton from Urban Tiger Radio, and my conversation this week is with Eleonora I M- No, hang on a minute, I'm not even going to try and pronounce this. I'm going, to, I'm going to let Eleonora tell you her name herself, because it sounds so much better coming from Italian lips than it does from mine. So, would you mind telling me what your name is?
1: Yeah. My name is Eleonora Mignoli.
0: Yeah. I, I, I no, I couldn't even approach yeah, that. People call me that. Leo. That's yeah, Leo. <laughs> yeah. The uh, actually, I did, I did look at vignoli in, in translation, and it means little fingers. Yes, it does. Yeah, yeah. How does is, is this a nom de plume or is it? Um... Um,
1: actually, it's a mistake. So it used to be vignoli, which means graveyard um, grape. Grapeyard? Grape vineyard. Vineyard. Yeah. Yeah. So it used to be Vignoli, which means Vignard. Yeah. Or from the Vignard. But then from Vignoli, it became Mignoli for a uh, mistake in the books a couple of generations ago. So oh, actually, right. where my dad comes from is basically the only one that it's called Mignoli. But there is a village in another part of Italy, which is full of Mignoli, which is quite fun.
0: Oh, so, right. I see. It just seemed a, a, quite a strange translation. I thought it was Google being Google again. No, it, it, right? it is. It's, yeah. Yeah, right, Different okay. Different
1: accent. Mignoli, Mignoli, but...
0: Yeah, so it's not a nom de plume, which is what I thought it might have been. Have you ever thought of writing under a, a, an assumed name?
1: Yes, quite often, especially because I write in English, so yeah. I've been thinking about that. But I, I believe that... You know, my name it's my identity in a way, and the fact that I'm a foreigner writing in English maybe comes up in the books or not. So um I'm still thinking about it, but mostly I think I would I would keep my name, really.
0: Yeah. Uh, now your English is probably better than mine anyway, but I'm I'm a Yorkshireman, so it's not hard to be better than me. What I was gonna ask you about your history You are Italian, and obviously you sound Italian. And why are you here? Why not Italy, where the sun shines and uh, there's plenty of wine? I
1: get asked that a lot. Um, Mostly because they don't do science fiction in Italy. That's um, really... Well, we do a little bit, but not as much as uh, I would like, and it's quite difficult there. Um, And also, I married an academic... (laughs) that works in the UK so that's yeah. another
0: but so. he's I, I met him the other night I'm assuming yeah he's Italian yeah, he's also Italian yeah, yeah he. I'd just like to add while I'm here that uh, I met Eleonora at the Novel Slam in Dina in Sheffield this year what was the date do you remember uh,
1: Thursday the 19th
0: yeah, that sounds familiar. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure. Right. Well, I, I'm calendarically challenged anyway. I never know what day it is. So, and you were on stage and, and where did you come in the rankings on that night? Um,
1: I passed the first selection with the pitch yeah. and um, I got to read an extract from my novel and uh, I got to receive some feedback and that was it. But afterwards I got a nicer surprise. From oh, Bill well. that invited me. <laughs> for a chat.
0: You're very welcome. Actually, I quite enjoyed what you read, and and you read it very well. But I, I'm still puzzling. I know I asked you this before. But I'm still puzzling a little why you would write in your second language and not in your first language, and then maybe do a translation. Well,
1: actually, um, it. It's because of the structure of the language. It's really difficult for me now to even think about writing something narrative in Italian. So I've always uh, wrote in English. Like, my writing career started in English. So it's quite difficult for me now to write in Italian and then translate it back into English. It's, it's just the sentence structures that doesn't yeah. work the same way.
0: Can, can I ask, do you find English more expressive than Italian?
1: Um... Not necessarily. It's just, again, a matter of genre. So um, a lot of science fiction I read in English and uh, all of the books that I read that are pertinent to my genre I read in English. So I think I kind of absorbed a lot of the uh, language specific to the genre directly in English. So I would be, I think, a little bit clumsy to do that in Italian, you know. I I, I wouldn't probably know a lot of the words that are specific to the genre in Italian.
0: Well, I'm sat here watching you, and it's long been an opinion, not just of mine, I have to say, uh, probably of my generation, that that half of Italian is done in gesture. (laughs) Uh, It's like you couldn't have a conversation in a telephone box, could you, As you keep hitting the walls. (laughs) But... Uh, and, and I'm watching you do this now. You, you're being very expressive. And uh, so do you think that Italians in general might find it difficult to put the written word down without the gesture? Um, I don't think I've ever met one that doesn't use gestures. No,
1: I think it's an add-on. I think we're quite capable of writing uh, in Italian without thinking about the gestures. But what happens quite a lot is that we can have very silent, well, especially in a familiar familiar context we can have uh, almost entire conversation without talking much so me and my mom sometimes across the room we have half a conversation just with gestures and very few words so I would think it's an add-on but I don't think it really um, influences the written the Italian written word now maybe you know there would be some reflection of the gestures in the writing but not you know not it wouldn't preclude the right thing.
0: Yeah, I, I've read some of your written work, and uh, I can't fault your English. Yeah, it... and uh, uh, you know, I'm actually I am surprised and delighted by that. But you know, that I actually can't take an issue with you over over your use of English. I, I think you you feel like you've been here a long time. How long have you been here?
1: Um, well, in the UK since 2000. And... and um, before that I lived for two years years and a half actually in Australia so mid 2011 so it's been about six years and a half now
0: Well let's just talk about Australia for a minute whereabouts did you live in Australia?
1: Um, I lived in Sydney Uh, I lived there for as I said two years and a half I um, got an advanced diploma in filmmaking specifically in uh, screenwriting from the um, Sydney Film School there. So that was one year of my life, a very exciting year of my life.
0: Well, when I Googled you, I I found that you'd actually taken part in filming an an Australian version of Doctor Who.
1: Yes, well, that was a sort of um, little project of somebody that um, really liked Doctor Who, so it was not... Sorry, I got to work on TV in Australia on a TV show called The Moody, so as a prop maker. Uh, but um, that was a sort of a, a smaller project that was inspired by Doctor Who. So uh, it sounds fancier than it actually is. I've seen the, Well,
0: I've seen the photographs, and the photographs are very uh, evocative photographs. They're, yeah, they're, no, no. They're, they're beautifully vignetted and uh, and sharp. Who took the photographs? Was I know because I know that you do photography as well, don't you?
1: Yes, well, I'm more than photography. I, I I do video editing and shooting as well. So that was my day job for a while <laughs> to be a self-producer and sort a director, you know, and producer and have a camera and go and shoot. So that kind of thing I did. So this this
0: took place in Australia. Your the, opportunity to become a director, film It director. started
1: there. Yes, it started there uh, because of the film school, really. So. I even got to go on stage at a TED event uh, in the Sydney Opera House, one of wow. my first films, so that was quite exciting. <laughs> yeah. um, I'm
0: beginning to think it's me that should be honoured here. <laughs> <laughs> no,
1: no, it's just like really little things that then add up a little bit during the years. It's um, It was interesting, yeah. It, it was nice travelling. You get to see a lot of things and meet a lot of people and learn a lot, but I have to say that the best experience that I had uh, while I was living in Australia is that my mentor at film school was Brian Hanna, to whom I really owe a lot, because he was um, one of the writers of Mad Max, the second film, well, first and second film. And basically he taught me everything I know about story writing and plot and characters. And it's been... Uh, we are still friends and it's been an incredible experience to be his student because um, he, he just had this encyclopedic knowledge about movies and he knew the genre because he was a science yeah. fiction person as well. So,
0: I, th- I think most opportunities in life come from meeting the right people. Yes. Uh, it's not necessarily what you know, is it? Yes, it, yes. It's who you manage to, to meet and learn from. Yeah. So I also see that you do short films.
1: Yes, quite a lot. So um, where do you
0: where do you film these?
1: Well, I moved around a lot. So <laughs> it's, uh, it's been a very uh, uh, moving around process. Um, so starting from the present going backwards, I'm collaborating with a production company here from uh, Sheffield that's called Brother Beers. So I recently wrote and directed a film with them. Uh, I mean, they produced it. Um, that's called The Bargain, and that's in the post-production stage. And then uh, last year, uh, I wrote another short film, and that got produced by the BBC. I was in Cardiff at that time, um, and so that was quite a nice little, you know, a nice little film that went on and, and did interesting things. So that was cool. another.
0: And you got full credit in that, obviously. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. No, no, you know, mm-hmm.
1: it's it's gone on, and it's um, it's won the best sci-fi at the New York City International Film Festival. Yeah. Uh So after being on BBC, um...
0: I noticed that you. Um, well, I'm gleaning from some of the photographs that you worked in Hazelwood's Mill. Did you do some of the filming on on Nursery Street? Sheffield.
1: Oh, yes, yes, yes. Sorry. I'm still new. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, um, that was for the bargain. That was for the bargain. So um, we we did the inside filming in Yellow Arch and then around... We were actually trying to get a rooftop location. Uh, like to shoot on top of a roof, but uh, It didn't go quite. I asked a lot of people, but apparently roofs are not a good good place for people to be on these
0: these days it's an insurance problem yes yeah Uh, i see you also do documentaries
1: um well yes i um i i directed a documentary when i was in cambridge a short one but my involvement in documentary comes mostly from the work with my husband who is an academic and um, he's also an ethnographer so he did this really really uh, interesting documentary, which, by the way, is available online, which is called Ain When It Starts Raining, uh, which is um, about a community of uh, Roma people in Bucharest who have been evicted from their home, and they put on a resistance, which is kind of like a, a very unique event. So it was there, it filmed, and then it was a Um, You know, I edit and did a lot of the motion graphic and stuff. So that was a very interesting project to work with somebody that, you know, you wake up, you see him and then you move to your studio and he's the director and it's quite interesting relationship.
0: Yeah. Do you find it improved your relationship working together?
1: No. No. (laughs) (laughs) No. It was quite difficult to have. We survived. I mean, it made what doesn't kill you make you stronger? That's the thing. Yeah,
0: Yeah. Which is why we... Our workrooms are separate. Yes. Here, no, because it's... we, it, it, it just doesn't work, does no, it? No.
1: Yeah. It, yeah. It works on other projects that we did together, but.
0: Yeah. Speaking of projects, I know you like to write short stories. Yes. And you brought one along today I called Hundred and Sixty Seven Trees." Yeah. And I've just read this, and it was, uh, it was actually very emotive and fascinating. I wonder if you'd like to read it for us now.
1: Yes. if... If you would like that. <laughs> okay.
0: This is Elio.' No, I'm going to have to say it yourself. Eleonora. Yeah, reading 167 Trees.
1: She had been chopping wood since childhood first helping her father with the smaller branches, then taking over the job after his accident. There, w- there was a the birch wood behind their farm, one hundred and sixty-six trees, a rare commodity in a land of endless rocks and never-ending skies. The tree's number never changed. For each one that she had cut down, a new sapling would appear later, not one more, not one less. It was a mystery that nobody explained, and everybody accepted. One day, however, she found the one hundred and sixty seven tree. Father she exclaimed, rushing inside, there is a new birch on the south side, near the well. Her father raised his eyes from his work, a little carving of a red knot bird, and took the pipe off his mouth. He sat in a comfortable armchair, his legs covered with by a blanket. Are you sure? She nodded eagerly. Yes, I've counted three times. Take me to see it. But it's almost dark, she protested. It will tire you. The lights will rise soon and I've been sitting here all day. She wanted to argue, but her father was seldom willful. She pulled the blanket aside, revealing his lifeless, bone-thin legs, and manoeuvred him till he was secure to her back. They used the sledge before, but now it was so light that carrying him was easier. The trip to the wood was filled by his voice in her ear and his smell in her nostrils. Tobacco, leather and perspiration. This is it? he asked, as they neared the sapling. She nodded and bent so he could brush its leaves. Let me have a look around, he said. The night sky had bloomed green bathing the rocky landscape with his whimsical luminescence, and they could see as far as the village. The wind ruffled the treetops, carrying a reminiscence of the sea. After a while, her toes began to freeze. It's a good spot, commented her father with a lustful voice. She felt his tears running down her neck. He had never cried before, and she didn't know what to say. So, she began walking back. Two days later, her father died in his sleep. It came as a shock. He had been energetic since the day they visited the woods. And after that, time slipped quickly away, stolen by grief and loneliness. But winter didn't wait, and she had to cut wood again. She approached the sapling first. It reminded her of her father's death, and she wanted it gone. Bitter, she raised her axe, and at that moment the wind blew in her face, carrying a faint scent of tobacco, leather and sweat. It was her father's smell. She dropped the tool, embraced the tree and he nailed its fragrance, and with each breath some of her sadness bled away, replaced by familiar memories. The tree enveloped her tenderly, wrapping its soft branches around her, almost like a father consoling his heartbroken child
0: wow thank you very much thank you and that was 167 trees is that available on your website to read um
1: no (laughs) no okay And, and why not may i ask um i i i I don't know, it's just like something that had been sitting in my folder for a while and I thought, uh, oh, I, I might take okay. that, but, you know, I might put yeah. it on if oh, you
0: want me to. I, I mean, that's a beautifully evocative story. Uh, very simple, very straightforward, very direct, no embellishments. It's, it just does what it says on the tin. I enjoyed that. Thank you very much. I want to ask you now about the BBC Writers' Room.
1: Yes. Um, Tell
0: me about what happens there.
1: It was a very interesting experience so um it came as um sort of a consequence or yeah a consequence of um being shortlisted for this it's my shout bbc competition that i did well actually two years ago now 2016 and so the shortlisted writers um each of us had written a short story uh so we went on to this um uh two days um writer's room workshop that um, um, Rachel Williams, I hope I'm saying the right name, Rachel Williams had organized. And um, we basically, there was a first day that was an intense storytelling, like front lecture, and then we got to write and rewrite and work on our stories and pitch them and rewrite them. And after that, uh, we sort of had personalized feedback, and then went back home wrote a new draft and submitted it and then from that nine short movies short scripts nine short scripts were selected two of them in Welsh and the other in English so and then they went on to be produced so mine which was very romantic it's um, that that's how it came to be really so
0: ah. and do you, do you feel that that really furthered your writing?
1: Well, it was a very interesting experience, yes, and um it uh, definitely the both the lecture and the sort of workshop was was really interesting and actually further, one of my conviction about short film writing, which is they have to be simple really it's um it's I think it's the key element in most um interesting and successful short films, I think. Yeah, You know, everything can be done, but in my experience, you can say very complex things, but in a simple story. Well, you,
0: you have the visual element too, which, yes. which isn't, yes. it's like another form of language yes. alongside your script. Yes. So, yes. talking about the visual elements, I notice you're also an artist and. You have a degree, a BA, from the Academy of Fine Arts in Turin. Yes. Now, I'm sat here with a very, very talented young lady. <laughs> yeah. So, tell um, me about your artistry.
1: So, I'm, I, I, I think I'm a storyteller. That's how I think of myself. and I'm mostly a visual storyteller. So, the, my interest for stories actually came about at the beginning in the form of drawing and painting, so I still love painting. I still do paint and draw, you know, if you, if you see on my Twitter sometimes drawings appear, um, I, I, I still do projects with my, you know, visual, <laughs> uh, with painting and drawing, but um, I did that. And actually I was, um, why my love, for, uh, illustration and painting remained I thought that I couldn't express everything just with one painting so I went on and got a Master in Communication always in Turin and there I did a radio interestingly my first screenplays were radio screenplays and then from that I moved into kind of like connected the two and moved on to a film and TV screenplays so.
0: Okay so so far we've got You're an accomplished artist with a degree. You've been through the BBC Writers' Room workshops. You do documentaries, short films. And and now you're writing science fiction and flash fiction, which I I know you like. And so tell me, which one is the real passion?
1: Well, I would say my real passion is science fiction in all of its uh, forms. So uh, for me, it's more a matter of Each story has a best way in which it's told. So, for example, my novel was born as a pilot screenplay, and then uh, it kind of organically became a novel because I thought that was, you know, that that way would do it more justice than just a screenplay. So,
0: right, okay. In a moment, I want you to tell me about the uh, novel slam. Well before you do tell me about a novel slam, I want to just hark back to your artist persona. Have you illustrated any books or anything yes. book uh, covers?
1: yeah that I illustrated a book called Il Numero uno which is uh means number one which is um basically a book my husband wrote uh about from his experience working with homeless people in Turin so that book has um twenty one orig- original illustration that I did, so that was a good project that we did together and we really enjoyed compared to the <laughs> documentary <laughs> that found us a little bit. so this
0: one didn't ruin your relationship no actually this
1: one like yeah, so our relationship was, uh, <laughs> you know yeah, yeah. at the beginning so that that that's still available and um it was a very interesting thing to do and um
0: so just to get back to the novel slump then. The experience of doing a novel slam what did that mean to you did it terrify you
1: yes so <laughs> i i didn't want to do it i kind of set myself up for it in terms that i told so many people that i was going to do it that you know when i the hour before when i was about to chicken out completely i realized that i would disappoint a lot of people that came to see me talk uh, and so I had to go but the, yeah it was for me I'm I don't like being on stage I don't like uh, being in front of a camera so and um, I don't like speaking in public that much so it was a way for me to force myself to, to, to be to do all of those things that I don't like because unfortunately the other half of being a writer is uh, finding somebody that wants to you to be a writer. so you have to sp- be able to speak to people and explain what you do. so yeah. that was a gym. So
0: how, how did you feel when you actually got through the first pitch?
1: Uh, Well, I was really happy. That was actually my... Was that
0: before the terror kicked back in?
1: (laughs) Yes, that was actually... I have to say I rehearsed it so many times that even if my brain was completely frozen while I was on stage, because the only thing I could think of was like, stay close to the microphone... Um, I sort of knew it by heart, so I I, I didn't make a mess of it. I hope, but yes, I, I will, My objective was to get to the second stage and get to read an excerpt from my novel. That was
0: which you did,
1: which I did. So that was yeah. my aim from the beginning, and to as as I said, be actually be on that stage and not have a fit of you know a bout of cholera or something yeah. before, <laughs> before the
0: end. From purely from an audience point of view. Listening to the, all the pictures and, and the novel excerpts can be actually quite difficult because there were fourteen readers on the night, right? yes. uh, and it, it's really difficult to to stay or to keep them separate yes. in your in your mind yes. as as a as a listener. You you've only got to go on there and do one job. We've all got to sit out there and vote and try and remember what fourteen yes. writers said. On Eureka, your yes. uh, novel your science fiction novel now looking at it i had one question yeah. now onirika is greek
1: well it's it's a mix so the the adjective oniric comes from the greek word oneiros which means dream but because it's set in japan i added the ka as um, a sort of, um, yeah. you know, Japanization of the word. And it's quite funny because Eric it's a very common word in Italian. And so when I wrote the title for it, I was quite sure that people get what it meant. And actually, maybe because I added the K-A, I don't know. But in English, it's not as common, though it is no, still is a true, word. Yeah. It's not as common. So I had a lot of people come up to me and go like, "What what does it mean? I'm like. Dreams. Uh, so that, that's. Yeah. Um, I still like it. I still think it's a good title. But the
0: Japanese for dreams is Yume. Yes. Which is yes. Well, actually that... a little more simple than yeah. One But Although it, it, it does have a Japanese sound to it. Yeah. I was just intrigued as to where you'd actually, or how you'd developed the title, but you just explained that beautifully. <laughs> so would you like to read us a short section from One Rika, please? Yes. Thank you very much. So here we have Onirica, am I saying it correctly? Yeah,
1: Onirica, yeah.
0: Yeah, by Eleonora Mignoli. Mignoli. Mm-hmm. Right, Okay. did I get anywhere near it that time? Yes,
1: no, it no, wasn't
0: Right, okay, fair enough. So this is part of the first part of the of the book. Yes. And your character's...
1: Is Lady Mackie. Lady Mackie,
0: is... and she is...
1: Actually, it starts off as the antagonist of the book, who has kidnapped uh, the... Talbot, so she has kidnapped Talbot's children, um, so that he's forced to enter the game of Onirica, which is a game set in the dreams of its players.
0: Right, so let's hear more about Lady Monkey. Old
1: Tokyo spread out in front of her in miniature the water of the overflown Sumida river almost black, in the horizontal light. The sea had spilled over the city, engulfing Koto, Taito, Chioda and most of the heart of the metropolis. The city from her youth was gone, submerged by the rising waters. Thousands and thousands of lives had been lost to the changing weather, to self inflicted destruction. From the folds of her sleeve, she pulled out a smaller leather envelope, and from it, a notebook. It had yellow pages and worn-out corners, and the cover was wrinkled from water exposure. As she opened it, it crackled like old bones. The first page read, Keiko's Diary, 2149-2151. Her hand rested on it for a long time, tracing the indented lines left by the ballpoint pen, brushing the faded name like a nun shelling a rosary. She couldn't bring herself to turn the page, to rouse the memories of a time best left untouched. Instead, she closed the diary, placed it in the leather envelope and tied it with a yellow ribbon. Footsteps approached from behind, crunching on the gravel. She knew whom the steps belonged to. She was just surprised it had taken so long to find her. A man in a tailored grey striped suit settled beside her on the bench. He had handsome, mature features, dominated by a thick, old-fashioned moustache perched on his upper lip. I never liked this place, he said in Japanese, breaking the silence. She did move her gaze from the half-flooded city. There is something I need you to do, she replied in the same language. She clicked her scion, retrieved Talbot's Lund's file and sent it to the man device. He opened the file and scanned the information. Room 9? he asked, surprised. Lady Mackie did. Find this Lund and persuade him to play on Eureka. I want him to enter this year's tournament. So he needs some very intense training and close monitoring. He is in a precarious economic condition. It shouldn't be too hard to motivate him. Whatever he asks for, give it to him. We have one shot at this and it is of utmost importance that he doesn't find out about Ray. We cannot influence him in that regard or will risk contaminating what Ray might have hidden in his subconscious. Consider it done. The man switched off his scion, then put his hands on his knees and leant back, settling into the silence. The sun had almost dipped under the horizon, its last orange-red slice thinning by the seconds. Neither the man nor Lady Mackie spoke, letting time rustle away like the leaves and petals above them. When the sky had turned a bruised blue, the man stood up. I'll be waiting in the car. Thank you, Hideo. He made his way down the hill, leaving Lady Maki sitting on the bench under the trees. As it rose, the moon illuminated the monster, snuck like little white animals among the dark roots and pink petals. One of the inscriptions read, Keiko Maki, beloved daughter, wife and mother.
0: Well, thank you for that one. This section, I have to say, that was. this is right at the beginning of the book, isn't it? This is quite a lot of scene setting and, uh, and characterisation. I think the characterization of Lady Mackey gives her an air of mystery, uh, an air of command. She's not a young woman. And, and, yeah, I like that. That's a really good characterisation. Now, this next section you're going to read is from further down the book, where, where the characters have become established and Talbot and his family have become involved in, yes. in the game of ornei Yes. Okay. So, would you like to read from that section a little further down the book?
1: Yes. So, this section um, takes place later in the book and uh, it's after, basically, the children have been kidnapped. Hidimaki closed her hand into a fist, and the hologram disappeared. She unbound her hair, it was long and full, the only part of her body where she had lavished a bit with the, the improvements, and started combing through it with her fingers. You have done much worse than this, Hideo said. That was a long time ago, Hideo. The world was going mad and everything was justified. I don't regret what I've done, and I would do it again. But it's different now. We are safe. What we have gained in the past 20 years has been through intelligence and relationship, not through deception and violence. What about the bribes we pay every month to those pigs of the Esport association and the military? That's hardly legal. But that's acceptable? A means to an end? Lady Maki fell silent. Hideo's reasoning scared her, always had, and for motives Lee would have had a field day with. He was a cruel, cold man, with a conscience as thin as onion skin. Loyal only to her and Ray, he was exactly as he needed him to be, the knife she wielded to make her own way into the world. All of this discussion is a moot point, you know as well as I do that I can't do anything you wouldn't, he said. I'm not sure that's true anymore. What about Ray? asked Kidio. His voice, I'm sorry. What about Ray? asked Kideo, his voice like the devil's whisper in her ear. That name was like a hot rod of pain, lodged deeply in her chest, ready to burn alive at the slightest mention. Are you going to... Are you giving up the chance to wake her only because you regret making a couple of kids uncomfortable? We'll compensate them for their troubles. They'll thank us by the end. Of course she wasn't giving up on Ray. That was out of the question. She had been working nine years trying to work her up, and she was not going to stop now. Every day, she felt Ray slipping further and further away from her reach toward darkness. She had spent the past month calling the hateful voice that whispered she had already lost her, her malignant suggestion adding another dark later layer around her heart, which was nothing more than a nugget of deep sorrow coagulating around e. Ray's image. She had tried to dismiss Camilla's suggestions about Luns as wishful thinking, but faced with a choice between letting Loon's children go and hanging to the miniscule hope Loon represented, she didn't have a moment of hesitation. She would burn the world to ashes if it meant Ray would wake up.
0: Well, thank you very much. Uh, that was an effort for you, I, I know. And I'm surprised actually because you do read reasonably easily. I, I uh, I, f- I find you—you you only have a slight stumble over pronunciation sometimes. That's all. But yes. Well, that, it's yeah. like
1: it's, yeah. Uh, well, uh, it's uh, the confidence about my accent and um, reading. Yeah, that's why I did the slam, <laughs> the novel slam, because <laughs> that's how I nervously get. So, um.
0: yeah. I, I mean, I remember your uh, appearance on the novel slam, and you actually. Came across very easy to understand, actually. On I on stage, a lot. Yeah. <laughs> It okay. was all practiced. <laughs> well, uh, thank you for sharing your uh, uh, the events of your life with us today. Thank and, you for having uh, me. We, you know, I am amazed you you are so accomplished and, and over such a, a broad section of the of the artistic genre. Um, I'm delighted too. So. Much look for the future. How long do you think it will be before One Erika is ready for submission?
1: I've done two uh, drafts and I've received some feedback now and I'm working on the third draft, which I hope is going to be the last. But it's a quite long novel, so I'm thinking um, February, maybe? February, and then I will need an edit, Like so... First submission probably around March, something like
0: that. Right. Okay. Just be careful that for most writers, the last draft is never the last.
1: No, I know, <laughs> but it means another draft. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm pretty sure it does. So, um, but it's been, it's been with me for about two years now. So I'm ready to yeah. let it go but, <laughs> into but, the word. Yeah.
0: I mean, a question once asked of me was, "How do you know when it's done?" And my answer to that is that you never do, no. and and no matter how many times you say, "Well, I've finished with it," if you pick it up again and start to look at it, you keep changing a word here and a word there, and you know mm-hmm. take a bit out, put a bit in. It's uh, a writer is never ever ever satisfied with uh, no, work. No, but so. I have
1: a lot of stories in my folders waiting to be written, so that's why I'm yes. keen on getting on with it.
0: Okay, right. Well, thank you very much for this morning. And uh, that was a a delightful uh, trek through all your achievements. So, thank you very much.
1: No, thank you. And
0: no doubt we'll be hearing about you in the future. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Bill. Thank you.
0: Right, well, that was my conversation with Eleonora Mignoli I cringe every time I say that because I know I get it wrong Uh, and, and I find her absolutely fascinating and I think the girl has a great future so this was it from me, Bill Allerton on Urban Tiger Radio and I'll see you again soon bye Well that's all for this week's show folks I hope you enjoyed your free podcast from Urban Tiger Radio and if you've hit that subscribe button, you'll be hearing from us again in a week's time. So it's a goodbye from me and a. <coughs> from Nelly. Goodbye.